Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startup to enterprise and everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to, follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of The Development Factory. Welcome, and thanks for listening. Dollar Shave Club started right here in Venice, California, the way many great product companies start, by solving a real problem that affects hundreds of thousands of people. That problem was overpriced razor blades, and their solution was a monthly subscription model that shipped customers a new razor every week for just a few dollars. Dollar Shave catapulted to fame with a viral marketing video launched in 2012 and in just a few short years became a major player in a space dominated by incumbents like Gillette. This past July, Dollar Shave was acquired by Unilever for a reported $1 billion, but today the company is operating much the same as ever. We're joined in this episode by Ashley Lewis, Director of Mobile Product at Dollar Shave Club, to hear more of that story. The very fact that you have a mobile application and this sort of online ordering, digital user experience, this is arguably part of what sets Dollar Shave Club apart from the classic like you know what i think razors i think cpg Mm -hmm. but you guys don't think of yourselves as cpg correct yeah we definitely think of ourselves as a tech company and it's really interesting if you think of our uh you know our initial offering was the razor subscription and you know a lot of uh, tech products their goal is to get users coming back uh day after day At first, with Dollar Shave Club, if a member was really happy, they wouldn't need to come back. They would set it and forget it. There wasn't much for them to do on the website. And as we're evolving into a men's grooming company, we really see that day-to-day interaction with our members as as, uh, chiefly important. So we do see ourselves as a tech company, lots of data, uh, data-driven decisions, that sort of thing. And um, as you'll start to see more of content and uh, interactive experiences that really allow us to engage with our customers in ways that traditional CPGs haven't been able to do. Now, with so much happening in kind of the artificial intelligence world, is it part of the roadmap that you'll just eventually have robots that can come and do the shaving for everybody? They won't even need their own razors. Sure, that would be nice, right? <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think what uh, what traditional CPGs struggled with is that they always had to sell their products through a retailer. They were not direct to consumer. And by uh, Dollar Shave Club going direct to consumer, we're able to collect a lot of that data that traditional CPGs didn't have access to, which allows us to make smarter recommendations, 
just have much more insight into these daily habits of our customers. We sort of dove right in, and normally I I, uh, I like to go gentle at first and then get to the sure. hard stuff. <laughs> but it's so cool being here. You guys are expanding. This is an awesome office. Let's talk about you. Okay. You don't just walk in as director of product, so mm-hmm. you have yourself a very impressive and long history in the world of product management. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you found product or how it found you and just what some of those experiences have been leading up to this? Sure, absolutely. So right out of college, I started working for an interactive agency. We were making websites and rich internet applications for some uh, uh, big name clients. And I was uh, functioning in a producer, project manager type of role. I would interface with our customers. I would collect assets. I would oversee design development. I would do QA. And at the time, um, I had no idea that these were going to really be the the building blocks of my career. It was a fun job out of college, and I didn't think about it much more than that. I ended up working for a company that uh, provided uh, tools for members of Congress to communicate with their constituents. I was uh, at first doing the same sort of thing, working with our clients, overseeing their website development, et cetera. And one day the CTO came to me and said, I want you to be our first product manager. And I didn't know what a product manager was. I didn't know what a product manager did. But I, I said, sure, I would love to. Sign me up. And we figured it out together. And ever since then, you know, I fell in love with product management. And now, did uh, they know what product management was? Or they had just sort of stumbled across the term, thought, we need this. Who's available? Oh, that Ashley's doing a good job. Let's let's appoint her. Yeah, I think it, I think the CTO did know what product management was. He was a very smart guy. We're still friends, and uh, so so he knew he knew what he was doing, and he definitely coached me, taught me a lot of the ropes. Uh, I learned what a roadmap was uh, because he told me I needed to have one, that sort of thing. So. He sort of just, you know, with with some coaching, but really sort of threw me into the deep end, and and yeah, it was it was a fantastic learning experience that obviously set me up for uh, for my entire career. Can can we stop for a minute and talk about road mapping because this mm-hmm. is such a big, it's such a big piece of the product manager piece. I mean, yeah. certainly if you're operating at a more senior level, mm-hmm. right? One one would argue that in a perhaps an enterprise level organization or where there's a big product team, that responsibility is going to float up to kind of the most strategic product person. Yeah. But can you describe your first roadmap and maybe just as compared to what you understand about it now from having done it subsequently? Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, uh, the one thing it has in common, I mean, uh, I've always just been Real basic when it comes to road mapping, I use um, you know an Excel document. Um, I've never used any sort of software for it, so that sort of stayed the same. But in the beginning, when I was first starting out, it was a lot of just sort of taking orders or taking requests, if you will, maybe adding in things that I wanted to work on. But generally, I was sort of the filter that would take you know, requests from our customers or requests from management and fit the puzzle pieces in. It was almost like, okay, I have these six things I need to do and um, maybe there's some fixed deadlines from above. So how do you sort of fit everything together so that it aligns nicely over the course of a year? Obviously, as you get more senior, as I've progressed in my career, there's been a lot more um, strategy to it where you start to think about, 
you know, level of difficulty to execute versus potential business impact, you start to uh, be able to push back on on requests coming from above or push back on hard deadlines that have been given to you. You start to understand that not everything a customer requests is something that you need to build. So working on these pieces of a puzzle to fit them in over the course of the year, but you just learn to better to better triage, to better understand the impact of, of your decision and your and your ordering of things on the roadmap, it starts to become um, you know, much more of a strategic business exercise. Let's talk about this pushing back from above, mm-hmm. right? Because this this is an important piece too. A lot of people get into product and I think they have it in their mind that they're gonna have all of this jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. When in reality, it's a lot more like you have all of this responsibility and zero jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, the least amount of expertise when looking around at your peers. Sure. Your, your role is to be the lifeline to the customer, that sort of person on the inside who's keeping that customer or those different customer groups front and center in the meetings, through the design process, through the road mapping process. And then there's interruptions mm-hmm. from CEOs, maybe who started the company and thought, no, 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 I want to see this here. Mm-hmm. And so how do you, when you're not the founder, when you're not part of the uh, executive management team, mm-hmm. how does it become, how is the process of defending the customer's position mm-hmm. when you're ultimately doing that against your direct Supervisors. Sure, absolutely. That's one of the most challenging things about product management, as you know. Uh, it really, it become it comes down to having uh, the data necessary to defend your position. So, uh, you gave an example specifically of you know, protecting the customer, but it could also be that their request doesn't make business sense or it doesn't make financial sense. Or if you were to model it out, it doesn't have the impact that they think it's going to have. So for me, the best way to approach an executive if I want to push back on something that they're asking for is just to come prepared with data. You know, I've talked to 50 customers or I looked at our conversion funnel this way or that way, and what you think is going to happen is is not actually what's going to happen. And what I found is the more prepared you are and um, the better you're able to articulate that, um, usually they'll come around. Sometimes they won't, and you know, sometimes you, you aren't sure, maybe you don't have the data, and so sometimes you have to just sort of negotiate or, or find a balance, let different stakeholders win when necessary or when you're able to, just to kind of keep the train moving. Because especially, how many people at Dollar Shave Club now? Uh, we're north of 200 now. North of 200. Mm-hmm. But you've worked in smaller organizations as well. Correct. And, you know, in in a startup configuration or a company that grows quickly, oftentimes it is the CEO or one of the founding members that occupies that product manager role for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I think the other part of this is they know this position mm-hmm. and you know they've necessarily left it behind because that's part of scaling and putting the right people in the right roles mm-hmm. but then you're also sometimes defending against a person who might feel they know better or they know just as well sure even sure. if they've been out of it a while 
Absolutely. Well, being out of it a while, I think, is one of the trickier positions to be in. They knew what the customer looked like in that first six months to a year post-launch when they were the head of product, but they've been more removed. The data maybe is different now. Maybe the customer is different now because at the beginning it was, um, you know, an early adopter or something like that. So that's definitely one of the most challenging parts of, of the job. And again, I go back to just being able to defend your position uh, coming in with uh, with data to support it, uh, both quantitative as well as qualitative. And uh, yeah, sometimes sometimes you you can get through and, and sometimes you can't. At the end, there's always someone, uh, you know, when you're a junior PM, you've got your directors above you. At this level, you've got executives above you, but even CEO has the board and, you know, there's always someone sort of to answer to. So the best you can do is just present your case in a well thought out way. Um, and you know, different executives handle that that differently. It's one of the biggest challenges of the job. So, would most people suggest they see you walking around in the halls, and you always have a dossier with you because you're just ready to throw down some <laughs> sort of data report if yeah. any conversation erupts? On I'm going to pull out my spreadsheet. I'm going to pull out my spreadsheet and show you why I think you should listen to me. <laughs> okay, noted. Talk to me about what you consider to be your special blend of PM skill sets. Because one of the other things that we talk about a lot on this show is every product manager can look a little different. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what's interesting about it. That's part of what's challenging about it. Mm -hmm. Your blend of skills may allow you to thrive in one environment and then sort of leave you floundering in a different one. Yep. So if you were going to pitch me on the kind of product manager that you are, mm -hmm. where where do you think you're strong? What do you think you do best? Sure, sure. So I have sort of an interesting mix of uh, technical uh, business and creative. I I took uh, quite an extensive amount of computer science classes in undergrad. I didn't end up majoring in computer science, but it allowed me to really have a good understanding of, of the technical component of product management. Uh, I went to business school, so I have sort of a mix of, of business as well as technical. Um, so if you were to think of like the three kind of core components of like business, technical, and creative, I sort of have formal education in the first two. But really what it comes down to, uh, I think what I do best is working with different types of people. I can adapt quite well to uh, the engineers, uh, anyone with business hat on, working with the designers, UX designers, et cetera, sort of the ability to communicate with all of them, uh, work together with all of them, probably I would say one of, one of the strengths there, um, just kind of having that unique blend of, of uh, understanding for each of the facets of the business. Right. Who are, not to out any one particular person on the mm -hmm. team, but in your career, which groups of internal stakeholders are the hardest to connect with for you? Sure, sure. Oh, gosh, that's tricky. Um, you know, I would say uh, personally, uh, one of the most difficult, uh, challenging groups has been uh, marketing because usually you have um, incredibly talented folks in marketing uh, who often have different visions and come from different backgrounds than the folks in product management so everyone sees the future of the business in their own light and with their own priorities so ensuring that you can work closely with marketing is obviously mission critical to the business and an area where I think a lot of companies have a little bit of friction 
usually marketing needs product management to bring their ideas to life because they need to build an on-site experience or vice versa product needs marketing to bring their ideas to life through email or other customer communication so everyone's working towards the same goal at the end of the day you have to remember that but company after company that I've that I've worked at it's it's those two teams who often have to use the most uh, you know be aware of, of their differences and work together towards that common goal one of the things that that comes up for me when I teach product management to mm-hmm. students is you know we talk about the importance of tools like personas mm-hmm. as an example as being a shareable piece of information that all departments can get behind mm-hmm. and that all departments can use and in a smaller organization it's easy to see how that can be feasible. There might mm-hmm. only be a UX team of two or three or four people. There might only be a couple developers, maybe one or two product people. So we all get together in a room, we jam out, we develop some personas based on the data. Everybody prints one and puts it by their desk and goes. Mm-hmm. But as an organization scales, mm-hmm. or even if an organization is already big and maybe didn't go through some of those fundamental building blocks, mm-hmm. I think what I'm seeing more and more is you have examples of marketing has their own personas. Mm-hmm. You know, they've downloaded some templates from HubSpot and they're running a strategy mm-hmm. and it's good. You know, they're using process. Right. But then the UX team has their personas. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of everyone is following process, but they're doing it in this siloed way. Yep. Have you encountered that at all? Yeah, absolutely. And you used personas as an example, but I'll take it one step further and say a lot of times I'm seeing goals, KPIs, major targets that you're working towards be inconsistent across platforms. So you might target uh, certain KPIs for marketing that are at odds with certain KPIs for product. I'll give you an example. If you were to give a, a KPI to marketing of X amount of traffic or X number of homepage visits, but then you were to give product a conversion goal, a straight percentage conversion rate, That's tricky because they can bring a large volume of low quality traffic that's going to impact your ability to reach your conversion target. Or similarly, you know, we could we could do something to have really cheap conversions through the funnel, but they're not going to be a quality, uh, you know, customer. They're not going to, especially if it's an ecosystem driven product, they're not going to be a a positive component to that ecosystem. So I think ensuring from the top that you're all focused on the same set of goals, or as you said, um, personas that top down alignment on, you know, this is the North Star, this is what we're working towards, uh, becomes critically important. And that's one of the things I've seen uh, time and time again, where there's misalignment on what you're working towards. And and as you grow, you have to be really cognizant of that because it can become um, a huge problem, not just because you have a bunch of heads running in different directions, but it will add to that friction. You can sometimes see between departments where they are working towards different goals. So the uh, the alignment on things that are going to be developed just mismatches. Well, and this takes us back to roadmaps, which we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. You know, if again, it's always the battle of the utopian circumstance versus the reality that comes with constraints. Right. In the utopian circumstance, you're in a room, 
maybe it's got a whiteboard and you're flowing quite literally down from the company objective right to the department objective to the project objective to the team objective and it's very very easy or it's easier mm-hmm. to keep those things um, the checks and balances right. because you're looking at the whole thing like a painter and saying oh now that I've set up this key result over here, I see that it's in direct conflict with this key result over here. Mm-hmm. How do I get them jiving? But that's also in a world where you're the one doing all of that planning. But I have to imagine in a company of 200 people, mm-hmm. there's not one person road mapping the entire organization. There's a bit of a collaborate. Correct. So how, how does that come together in your experiences that you've seen as everyone gives their little picture of the roadmap and someone's supposed to stitch it together like a quilt yeah it's really tricky and exactly what what you just explained we could all outline what the uh, utopian solution would look like and you know every project is graded for level of effort versus potential impact I've seen many many things tried over the years I wish I could tell you I've I've seen a process that perfected it I, I haven't yet I think the key thing when you're taking requests from different departments or different stakeholders and trying to get them into one roadmap is just to ensure that whatever the process is, everyone buys into it. Because what you don't want to have happen, uh, I could easily tell you that using intuition in my 10 years of experience, I could magically place everything um, into the roadmap, but certainly that wouldn't be what finance would want to hear when they find out that their project is at the end of the line, right? That wouldn't necessarily um, be too comforting for them. So usually what works best is having representatives from each department you know, sitting in a room. A lot of times this is done in off sites where you take all of your initiatives and and you pitch them and you say, you know, this is what I want to do. This is why I want to do it. This is how long it's going to take. And this is what the expected outcome is going to be. And then weighing all of those against each other, usually collaboratively, you can put a roadmap together. Now, again, it's never quite as easy as that. But making sure that everyone is bought into the process so that it doesn't feel like product is just secretly, you know, behind the scenes, black box, putting everything together and then presenting it outwards. That's usually the quickest way uh, to lose trust from other departments, making it as collaborative as possible, at least as it relates to the process, in my experience, has worked the best. The other thing that road mapping brings up for me is just how quickly KPIs can proliferate. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's such an instinct because there are so many tools that allow us to collect data. Mm -hmm. The instinct, of course, is let's collect everything. Right. But even if you use that example, that sort of, you know, flow example where you have a key result for the company, you have some key results for departments, Every, every department, every project, every team has one KPI, maybe two. Mm-hmm. In an organization that's quite large, you can see how even just the agreed to mm-hmm. KPIs could be 30, 40, 50 different metrics right. that are being gathered up at any given time. Mm-hmm. And so how, do, how does an organization manage looking at that many things? Or does it just sort of become secondary because I have this other suspicion which is that there's what we all think people are doing if we're reading Fast Company and TechCrunch we all think everyone is really buttoned up yeah and then there's the reality of people aren't looking at dashboards right 
Yeah, I would say it's it's definitely tricky. Uh, as the company gets larger, you and you start to have the luxury of a data analysis team or someone who can actually publish uh, reports that utilize consistent definitions that everyone's looking at. I mean, that's a really nice to have that not everyone has the luxury of having. You're absolutely right. I think in most companies, you know, even if you have two people looking at a report of your current subscribers or your current revenue, uh, definitions can be quite inconsistent from one report to the next. I've always been an advocate of just focusing on some key and some core metrics and analysis and getting those right, having a shared understanding of what certain terms mean or having shared definitions of how certain metrics are looked at, I think is mission critical. Even in small organizations, it can be so easy to uh, take for granted that people are understanding things in a similar fashion. So like I said, I've always just focused on getting a few key things right and doing the best you can to ensure that everyone's speaking the same language. Having a, a good data analyst from the beginning, even if you're a small company who can traffic those things, uh, make sure that if one person's asking for something but someone else has already asked for it, that you're not duplicating effort, that can be one of your most important hires early on. I've seen I've seen companies struggle without it, and I've seen companies get that hire right and just have massive success with the way that they're able to make data-driven decisions going forward. I've somewhat by accident have managed to attend half a dozen data science panels mm -hmm. over the last several weeks. And I think the thing that I recognize from data scientists hearing them speak on panels mm -hmm. is you have all of these incredibly bright people who seem to struggle in their ability to communicate what the hell it actually they do all day long. Right. So when you say to our listeners, you know, go out and get a good data person. Right. And some of those listeners who, who may already be product managers and may already be thinking, aren't I supposed to be the one to be looking at the data? So where in your, in your mind does the line cross between a product manager who understands the importance of data and collecting it and reviewing it mm -hmm. versus a data scientist whose role is to really be in the data all day long organizing it, aggregating it, and disseminating it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's certainly different types of data folks, everyone from you know someone who's going to be running queries for you to someone who's able to help you with the analysis to one step further where they're actually uh, looking for trends and patterns that can be utilized for much more forward-looking business types of decisions. And when I say get a strong data person, I really just mean a partner who can understand with you the, the KPIs, help you track them, help you look for trends that maybe you, you didn't notice. I think Product managers certainly need to have the ability to analyze their own data, understand their own data, and take it and make business decisions off of it. But to say that you don't need someone to lean on or you can't have someone to lean on, I think is trying to do too much. I think you'll never in a standard day of a product manager have enough time to devote to the data on your own. Having a strong partner that can pull reports for you and even be one step ahead of you, pull reports that you didn't even know you needed or wanted is a huge asset for product management. Are there on this same topic of kind of 
processes that should be there versus processes that aren't. What are some mm-hmm. of the other things that you've seen behind the walls, not just here at Dollar Shave, but mm-hmm. in other organizations and even organizations you haven't worked at but have mm-hmm. friends that do, where it's way more Wild West than anybody would actually believe? Because, And I ask this question because I think part of it is giving yourselves a break. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much pressure to know so many different things. There's a lot of this rhetoric around full stack developer, which is, you know, such an impossible reality. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of rhetoric around becoming integrated. And I understand the importance of being integrated. Mm-hmm. But the reality of being integrated means knowing a lot about a lot of different things more of which is proliferating all the time. Mm -hmm. So how much of it is in real life way more Wild West? Sure. I would say that there's a lot more Wild West going on, exactly to your point earlier about you read these articles from companies and Fortune and whatnot of how buttoned up everything is. I've worked at really small startups to much more, I mean, Dollar Shave, like I said, north of 200. I've worked at Zynga, which is much larger than that. There's always room for some Wild West to happen. I think sometimes you need a little Wild West to happen to get things done. So especially larger organizations where there's a lot of process in place, sometimes you have to just roll up your sleeves and get something done. You have to be a little bit ninja-like in order to uh, get what you're looking for completed. So I don't pay too much attention to formalized process. I mean, it's there for a reason, and you need to understand what that reason is. But at the same time, if that process is blocking you or getting in your way or otherwise just becoming process for the sake of process, you need to do what's right for you. You need to do what's right for your team and figure out a way to get it done. All right. Let's come back to Dollar Shave Club. So, you know, I'm taking, I'm working from the assumption that people know Mm -hmm. about the company. But there may very well be people who don't. I mean, the company has been incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. Can you give us, like, the really brief Reader's Digest history of what is Dollar Shave Club? Yeah, absolutely. So our CEO, Mike, had an idea uh, back in, you know, 2011, 2012 to change the way that Uh, men purchased razors so you know many times when you go to buy razors at the drugstore they're under lock and key and they're quite expensive and he was looking for a better way for men to not only buy razors but he had this uh, long-term vision of changing the way that men uh, handle their grooming and most people have seen at this point the video that went viral of Mike promoting the razors it's it's still on our homepage. And that was really the start. I mean, that just started this huge growth curve of, of membership signups, and it took off from there. So it started as a monthly razor subscription business. It went on to other men's uh, grooming categories. We have a line of hair products, uh, shaving support products like Shave Butter and Post Shave. And now what's most exciting is we're going into uh, the area of content. So we just launched a section of the site called Original Content, which brings together both our Bathroom Minutes blog, which is men's grooming tips and whatnot, as well as men's lifestyle. It's called Mel, Mel Industries. And that's where you'll see a lot of lifestyle, non-grooming related articles, even some short video clips. And we've built out an entire editorial team to push that area of the business forward. So it's it's really been 
fantastically received by by men by customers we have over three million subscribers uh, 240 million revenue and as you know we were recently acquired by Unilever that's right you were now you're part of the big machine Mm -hmm. but still operating hopefully some of that startup mentality is still alive and well absolutely Unilever wanted to maintain our sort of startup vibe they didn't want to get in the way Uh, they liked our culture and wanted that to uh, stay our culture so if you weren't here the day that the acquisition was announced you might not even know that we were part of the Unilever family you really don't see it on a day-to-day basis now I suspect there's certain departments that see it more than others if you're responsible for contracts or financial reporting that sort of thing I'm, I'm sure there's hooks but from a product management uh, our roadmap, we're still completely autonomous. We really don't see much. They've they've gone through great effort to uh, allow us to keep moving the way we had been prior to the acquisition. Now, to go back to that sort of, that now famous video, mm-hmm. is it considered around here to be Dollar Shave Club's minimum viable product? I mean, it, it reminds me of the Dropbox video. That mm-hmm. Nobody's going to buy this thing. We know it's easy to use. We know there's value. How can we show people I know? I'll just record myself showing you how easy it is. Mm -hmm. Or was the business sort of way more built out and proven out and that video just became marketing famous? Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't around back then, so I I, I can't answer that specifically. I don't know exactly what stage of the business it was in when he came out with the video, Um, but I do know that that definitely helped to um, catapult the business from an acquisition standpoint. And of course, it's tricky. Customer acquisition. Exactly, the customer acquisition standpoint. So it's tricky because I'm, you know, I'm sure a lot of businesses would love to to replicate that. I'm, I, you know, I'm sure Mike gets asked a lot, you know, how do I how do I create a video that's that viral? But as anyone knows, it's, you can't just set out to create something that is that viral. I mean, it had something so special about it, which is why we still keep it around to this day. Well, and what I love about the story is. It really is the epitome of great product. Great product is kind of the rain to California's drought. Mm-hmm. It, when when the need is so deep or so deeply felt that if that solution comes along and it's the right solution, it sort of goes on its own. And that's mm-hmm. because everything is dry, everything's been overlooked, and then... Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think people just love the concept. I mean, you can see if you were to go on to any of our social media sites, um, not even as a as a an employee. Any if you just went and took a look at our our Facebook page, for example, customers just love us. I mean, they just do. We have the best customers, and they're very loyal. So I think they just found something um, to hold on to. Yeah, you know however much for these razors I'm getting at the drugstore is, is crazy. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to turn to this company that uh, that gets me. I, you, you see that loud and clear from our customers just via social media alone. In terms of, you know, you, you mentioned that there's know, 200 or so people here. Mm-hmm. What is that kind of high-level construct? I mean, how many people are on the product team or Maybe I, I should ask first, how many products are there? Because you talked about your role as being kind of part of the mobile app. Mm-hmm. And presumably there's a team who's responsible for the physical product and in its journey. Mm-hmm. You've got, uh, you know, additional product lines. So can you give us a little bit of the 
anatomy? Sure, absolutely. So there's a department who is responsible for the actual physical product, as you said. Uh, they have backgrounds in formulation, etc. So we don't work with them too much. Of course, we have to be aligned with them uh, with regards to uh, physical product launch timing because we have to be prepared to get those products onto the site and onto the app. So we work with them from a scheduling perspective, but but they're, they're a separate department. Actual uh, product management uh, in a traditional sense, we have, of course, uh, a team that manages the website, my team, which manages the mobile apps. And then as I uh, mentioned, our new content team, which oversees the development of content on both our site, as well as working with the native app team to bring that content to life via the native apps. So that's sort of how we're set up. I've seen um, you know, some product teams at different companies are organized around features. Uh, at the most uh, top level of our product organization, we're split by platform. And then within each of those platform teams, we have uh, groupings by business focus or feature focus, that sort of thing. When you say platform, are you referring to like operating system platforms or something else? Oh, just uh, website and native apps. So we're split at the top website and native apps. And then, so that's what I mean when I say platform, the right. .com platform or the native app platform. So in the company baseball game, it's the mobile app team versus the desktop team. Correct. And do you guys win? Well, we're certainly trying to catch up. We were, we had a, we were late to the game. Right. So now we're, now we're trying to catch up. Right, right, right. Amazing. Um, talk to me about the difference because you, you worked at eHarmony. Correct. Yeah. You've worked in several what I would call electron-based organizations. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, you know, people are talking a lot about product management lately. Yeah. But it's not that it's a new domain. I think it's just that, one, the proliferation of, of, of tech-based companies has created more opportunities for product managers. And two, many people just still refer to it by its sort of old-fashioned name, brand management, mm -hmm. which is especially prevalent for CPG-based businesses or traditional sort of retail. Mm -hmm. So you come from a lot of electron-based experiences. Mm -hmm. And now you're in a world where even though Dollar Shave Club considers itself to be a tech company, mm -hmm. there is very much a physical product piece. Mm -hmm. So how has your role as product manager been different just between those kind of two different types of environments? Uh, I would say that working at Dollar Shave Club where we have a physical product is one of the challenges that I was most excited about. Exactly as you said, I've worked at eHarmony uh, where you know the experience is the website or the app. Uh, very much at Zynga, uh, where I worked. I mean, the game that I was working on was the experience. It was the product. There were no offline. What was the game? I was uh, I was on the product team of Words with Friends. So. That's a very good game to yes. be part of the team. Yeah, well, it was a, it was an app that everyone definitely had heard of and had most likely downloaded. So that was a good time for sure. It's very very different working on a product like Words with Friends than something like Dollar Shave Club, where you have this. Uh, physical product component, but that was one of the challenges I was most excited about. If you think about the Los Angeles tech scene, more and more the companies that you're hearing about have a physical product component. You've got Honest, you've got Thrive Market, there's a number of them, right? Even if you think of 
uh, in the sharing economy space. Uh, you know, I also was at Dog Vacay for a while. There's that offline experience that you can't control. So I think as a product manager, sort of rounding out um, your breadth of experience, being able to uh, work on a product where what you're working on isn't the only facet of the product is a, is a great learning opportunity. I'm getting to work with people who have really strong CPG backgrounds and are used to working with retailers. You name it. It's 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 just a really unique experience that I was really, really excited to get to try. You bring up an interesting point. I'm just curious. Do you think that that is specific to Los Angeles? I mean, you're right to highlight that we have a very exciting thriving, emerging tech community here. Mm -hmm. And of course, when people talk about tech on a national scale, it's always Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. What what do you think characterizes the tech scene here? Sure, that's a great question. So I did spend a little bit of time up in San Francisco when I was working at Zynga. I was in the San Francisco office. I was only there for a short time, but I will say it had a very different feel than the tech scene down in Los Angeles. In San Francisco, pretty much everyone you meet was in the tech scene, at least from my experience, that that was what I saw. So it was, you were really ingrained in all tech all the time. There was lots of meetups. There was lots of um, out of the office conversations happening. There was just a lot of noise related to the tech space. And down in LA, it's quite different. It's far more diverse. Uh, you know, I think tech is really starting to build a name for itself. I think the funding in Los Angeles is starting to grow, which is fantastic. But you don't feel all immersed in the way that you do when you're in the Bay Area. So definitely different, but very exciting to see it growing and to see sort of more attention coming to the startups that are that are coming out of Los Angeles. Uh, and hopefully we'll have a little bit more diversity with regards to uh, options available from a career standpoint. I love that you, you bring that up because that was one of the experiences that I had when I moved here, you know, mm-hmm. when I was coming to Los Angeles, I was visiting a lot for, for personal reasons, for business. And I thought, oh, the outside world has this perception that the only thing that happens in LA is entertainment. Mm-hmm. And of course that does happen and mm-hmm. it is huge. But then when you're here, you realize, oh no, there's a lot of going on. There is fashion stuff that's going on. There mm-hmm. is art stuff that's going on. And I would echo that sentiment. It's nice that you can find yourself in conversation with people who are part of tech Mm -hmm. and that equally there's people at the table who aren't Mm -hmm. and they bring color and perspective Mm -hmm. for the same reason you know when we say we can't fall in love with our own solution or design products based on what we would choose because Mm -hmm. most of the time we already know too much Mm -hmm. which is why we have to remember our customer absolutely i think it's the same thing industry-wide it's sometimes it's just good to hear what people are doing who aren't in tech as a way of thinking about our own industry Mm -hmm. absolutely All right, so score one for Los Angeles. Definitely. Plus we have the weather. Right. Are you from here originally? Yes, I was originally from Los Angeles, and when I took the job up in San Francisco, I'll never forget, I moved up in August. It was 80 degrees down here, and uh, I was very excited to move to San Francisco, but I got up there, and it was sweater and scarf weather, and I (laughs) thought, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) 
<laughs> it was, was a it quite weather a... that ultimately drove you back. I, how can I survive like this? Yeah, no, it wasn't weather that ultimately drove me back. Uh, you know, I missed my family, and there was a great opportunity for me to come back. But I haven't ruled out going back up there at some point. We'll see. One of the segments that we have here on the show is what I kind of call get the job, learn the job, yep. love the job. And since I, you guys are hiring, aren't you? We are. Okay, so this will be interesting. So let's talk first about getting the job, which mm-hmm. which is you know advice for up-and-comers, career changers, people who are junior that want to take that next step. Yep. What advice would you, Ashley, give to somebody who wants to get into the world of product or thinks they do? And then by extension, what advice would you give them if they were hearing this episode and submitting their resume to you and wanting to come and work with you or part of your product team? Yeah, absolutely. So I have always, when hiring, looked for uh, people who are smart, sharp, uh, attention to detail, and and really, really eager uh, to do a good job. I often look for, you know, either recent grads or folks with just a year, a couple years of product management experience. So I would say even if you don't have an extensive background in product management, that's okay. A lot of times product teams are looking for folks with the right skill set that uh, give them you know, a lot of uh, potential. You might get hundreds of resumes on there. She just (laughs) said, I don't need experience. What's her email address? Yeah, what I look for, uh, so so, uh, so I always figure I can can train, you know, how to do a roadmap. I can train how to use Jira, that sort of thing. So it's having those those key skills uh, that we look for. So if you don't have product management experience, have you led an organization maybe in college or a community volunteer organization? Can you prove you have leadership skills? Can you prove that you have a little bit of a technical understanding. You know, entry-level computer science classes are a lot of fun, and in this day and age, there's so many opportunities to take them um, at low or sometimes even no cost. So have you shown that you are are interested in, in being somewhat technical? Have you taken some entry computer science classes? It's really just proving that Um, You have the potential to show leadership. You have the potential to work well uh, with the engineers uh, that you're hungry. Maybe you have a side project. You know, maybe you've participated in a startup weekend, for example, or a hackathon where they're looking for people with a diverse set of backgrounds. Just proving that you're interested in learning, uh, have an eagerness to learn. Um, is is really can get your foot in the door. So that would be my advice is is just seek out these things that you can do without getting hired per se, taking classes, volunteer opportunities, that sort of thing. Um, talking to a bunch of different product managers, don't be afraid to reach out on LinkedIn, you know, ask for advice, ask how they got to where they were. People are constantly asking for a quick 15 minute chat with me to get some some insight into how to get to where I am. So um, th- that would be my, my advice. Certainly, um, if you have a little bit of product management experience, it helps. But especially in the LA market, it's very difficult to find good talent. So in the absence of that, I will look for someone who I can grow into good talent. When you say it's difficult to find good talent, mm-hmm. is that because... Is that is that regarding the fact that the tech industry itself is relatively young and so most people have been in different disciplines? Mm-hmm. Or is there a deeper problem of... Because there may be some people listening in going, um, I have lots of talent. Mm-hmm. Why? So I'm wondering, is there just a, a, a disconnect between 
companies that are looking for great people mm-hmm. and great people that are looking for companies? I mean, it could be. I will say this in 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 the Bay Area. Obviously, we talked about there being uh, just a much larger volume, a much larger pool of candidates uh, to to pull from. In LA, it's not quite as big of a of a pool, and maybe it's just a function of um, again the 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 diverse, you know, people that you come in contact with, maybe there is a disconnect between the candidates and, and the people looking. But I, I will say, uh, you know, we aren't flooded uh, with uh, candidates that, that fit what we're looking for in the way that you might think. It's, it's, it's a bit trickier. So um, like I said, I laid out a few skills that can really help you set yourself apart from the other candidates. Um, and I, I would really encourage that because because really, it's it's not as large of a of a of a pool to pull from. So any of those things you can do to set yourself above uh, will stand out. We should offer our listeners like a 100 p.m. Uh, URL extension so mm-hmm. that when they apply, mm-hmm. if they reference this code, we know they're listening, which is some indication that they're actually sure. trying to learn a thing or two. I mean, that's part of why this show exists. Yeah. Product management can look so different. Mm-hmm. You, you're a living testament to this. From mm-hmm. one environment to the next, the culture is different. The demands are different. The skills that you need to have are different. Mm-hmm. So even when you do know it, mm-hmm. even when you are seasoned, there's not really, there's always going to be an opportunity for you to learn something. Sure, absolutely. And I will say, I mean, I think you would be surprised how many people we we talk to for positions who haven't taken the time to check out the product that they're interviewing for. So if I offer just one piece of advice for folks interviewing, I mean, it may seem so obvious, but just make sure you do your research, really understand um, the, the product that you're going to be working on, um, you know, uh, what that company's background is, what they offer, that sort of thing. Um, little things like that seem so minor, but they will set you apart from from the crowd so um really really just important to to anything you can do to kind of stand out is 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 worth it just listening to you say that got me thinking and wondering you know this is a men's grooming company Mm -hmm. obviously you're a woman here Mm -hmm. um do you think there might be a perception out there that the only people who work here are a bunch of dude bros and if that is a perception do you want to offer us a different insight oh yeah absolutely I actually was told that when I was interviewing from someone that 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 was their perception and I mean it's anything but I will say not to shamelessly plug the product but they uh, are all unisex products so you can use them I use uh, most of our products myself the razors included so they are great products but um, but certainly no I mean it doesn't matter if you want to work for a men's grooming company or if you're married and you want to work at eHarmony, as long as you can find a way to be passionate about the product that you're going to be working on, and even if it's not the most direct line, for example, Dollar Shave Club, I love that we don't test our products on animals. They're 100% cruelty-free. That I can throw my weight behind, right? So it turns out that the products are fantastic for women, and I love using them myself anyways, but it doesn't matter if you are the exact customer of the product that you're going to be working on. As long as you yourself can find a 
way to be passionate about it, it'll work. Well, I think women out there appreciate that they don't have to pay the pink tax if right. they partner with Dollar Shave Club. I and mean, a lot of that original value proposition to men, which was stop paying you know, wild fees for all of these fancy blades when this product is perfectly good, mm-hmm. I think extended equally to women who, you know, have a long history of, oh, ours costs, you know, two times as much and everything is pink because women love pink or women mm-hmm. love butterflies. So. Sure, sure. Absolutely. I'll tell you this. I lo- took a look at our uh, SPF face moisturizer and I compared it to my much more expensive woman's face moisturizer and it was the exact same. So I'm a convert. I love it. Okay. All right. This is all good insight. Yep. What about learning the job? Mm-hmm. Is there been um, a big mistake, failure, breakdown in tears <laughs> just a moment where you thought you knew what you were doing and then you discovered on some scale that you didn't that you're comf- that you're far enough away from now that you can share and laugh about oh sure I mean gosh back when I first started uh, eHarmony I was originally working on two of our our niche business lines one of which was a high-end personal matchmaker business and with that one I definitely felt like I was a little bit in over my head you know there were things where we were supposed to be launching it as a test and I would make some bizarre decision to put something on the website to 100% of users because engineering you know talked me into it for one reason or another and you're left thinking you know what was I thinking obviously this wasn't going to work that sort of thing so um, I would say when you're first learning um, just making sure you think everything through uh, it's really easy to talk to one set of of folks on your team engineers maybe and you know get convinced to do one thing and then you know go over here and talk to your designer and and get convinced to do something else and and uh, and that can really throw you off that and that threw me off that was the time I went home in tears wondering if I could do this job because I made such a stupid mistake Um, but really just take your time you know make sure you really understand the problem that you're working on from from all different angles and 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 what the potential consequences are of certain decisions um really has been yeah that was that was where I started learning oh you know you really have to think things through so yeah everyone makes mistakes um in the beginning I was uh one of the things that was tough for me to learn also was not everything's going to be perfect uh I would I would leave in tears a lot because my deadlines got missed or oh gosh in the beginning if a bug would go out on something I was working on tears most likely I would just be so upset about it you were falling apart a lot in the I was days. falling apart. I know now I'm just making myself sound like I was a complete mess back in 2011 um no it you know it, it's a lot it's a very stressful role um being responsible for deadlines keeping people happy uh, making sure that your product is high quality, that your customers are going to like it. It's a very, very high stress role. So, you know, you can't take it too seriously. I tell people on my team a lot, at the end of the day, it, it's a job. And the fact that you're so upset is proof that you're passionate about what you're working on. The day someone doesn't get upset about something, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll worry. So, but it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to say you're stressed out. It's okay to say you feel in over your head. I think all product managers go through that. Is there one facet of the job that has evaded you throughout that you're like, I'm just, I'm never going to be that product manager because that little piece is just not my forte. Thank goodness I have this great 
data scientist by my side or whatever example. Oh, sure. Yeah, I would definitely say, you know, it's 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 funny. And in, in some areas, I have great attention to detail. So if you put me in charge of QA, I could really nail that. Um, but in other areas, I'm I'm just a mess. So d- maybe this is why I recommended a data analyst early on. If you took a look at some of the spreadsheets I have saved on my desktop, gosh, I mean, I'm the only one that could potentially ever understand them. They're a complete mess. So um, I would say, yeah, I, if, yeah, when it comes to data, I can pull my own numbers, but it's going to look like a war zone on that Excel spreadsheet by the time I'm done. So maybe that's why I recommended having a strong data analyst early on, because that's what I need. But this is just uh, mm-hmm. evidence of your strength overall, which is, you know, I think the saying is, you know, know what you know and own what you don't. Mm-hmm. And there is some some people really struggle with saying, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think I know are the two most dangerous words when put together in a sentence. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of maturity in just saying, I'm not the most technical person here. You know, mm-hmm. I can offer this level of insight. And if we really need to make a decision, let's go in and bring our tech lead in the room or, mm-hmm. or get somebody else who can speak to that and feel really comfortable to say it's okay. Most of the time, as we talked about, you won't be the smartest person in the room because your skills are diluted across a number of different domains, whereas mm-hmm. somebody working in design or in engineering, they're doing that role day in, day out, being amazing at that specific skill mm-hmm. or, or small constellation of skills. Absolutely. I would say this. It doesn't matter if you're um, a, a senior PM coming into a new role, or senior director, vice president, when you're coming into a new company, there's a lot more that you don't know than you know. And I've seen some top level leaders come into companies acting like they know more than the team that they're managing simply because of their seniority and fall flat on their faces because it's simply not true. They may know more about uh, you know what's led them to be successful in the past. They may have some great ideas on processes and procedures and ways of looking at the future that will help them to be successful in the future. But even if you know at your last company something took one month to build, that doesn't mean it's going to take one month to build at the new company. So always, 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 it's okay to say you don't know, to learn, to ask questions. You look far better doing that than acting like you know more than you do. And especially in the role of product management where it's important to have that trust with everyone on your team, um, doing anything to uh, to discredit yourself right out of the gate, is it's going to be really hard to come back from that. What's your favorite thing about product management? Oh, my favorite thing is that I do something different every day and usually it's whatever uh, I'm sort of in the mood for. If I'm in the mood for uh, working on some future uh, road mapping, I can do it. If I'm in the mood for wireframing something out, checking out other apps from different companies or you know, just interfacing with the engineers, seeing what they're up to, every day is different uh, and every day is fun. And if there's something you know, I'm not particularly interested in doing, most of the time it's okay to put it off to tomorrow. So I just love the autonomy and the flexibility uh, that product management provides. We have at uh, 100productmanagers.com an ever-growing resource list. Mm-hmm. Uh, books, podcasts, blogs, just things that we've collected from our various guests. Mm-hmm. Do you have any in your library? And 
they don't have to be product management specific. You know, it could be this really great science thing that you love, but just mm-hmm. anything that you've encountered that you think, oh, this is gold. Sure. Well, my first two, because you had asked me uh, this this uh, this question in preparation for our time here, and so I pulled out two that I thought were going to be super useful, and then I checked, and they were already on the site. So I'm going to give a plus one vote to uh, the first round blog. I think is super useful. I think that's um, definitely a resource that product managers should reference often. And then uh, the book Crossing the Chasm, I can't recommend that enough. So I'm going to back back those two with my vote. Um, a couple other things, I look at pattern websites all the time. So um, there's a great one, patterns, uh, pttrns.com, and I can send you the URL. Um, they're constantly posting screens for, you name it, you want to find welcome screens or a sign-up screen or what have you. I look at that constantly. Um, most of the ideas, you know, it never hurts to borrow from other sites that have solved that problem before you. Um, and then the other thing, this isn't necessarily a resource, but I would just recommend I'm always downloading new apps in the App Store. Um, every weekend, if I'm on my couch or have some downtime, just downloading five new apps uh, on the iTunes homepage, that sort of thing. So it's not necessarily a specific resource you can list, but for people listening, something I would highly recommend uh, just you do. Just as a do. process for sort of staying aligned with what's happening. In exactly. The- staying in the in the loop and in the know and uh, up to date on, on certain trends. And if you're looking for a job or you're going to be looking for a job, you're always going to get asked, you know, what are some of your favorite apps? What are some of your favorite sites? Um, you should never, you know, be caught off guard by that question. And so keeping yourself up to date. Oh, I saw this really great app last week on iTunes. It was such and such, especially if it's something um, that maybe someone hasn't heard of. Is It's just a good resource to have in your arsenal. So have you stumbled across anything great that we should all know about? Oh, just... you're going to catch me off guard with my own question. Um... Never be caught off guard not <laughs> knowing which apps are awesome. No, just things that you've seen that are cool or... Well, you know what I'll tell you, the trend that I've been super fascinated by lately um, is anything having to do with chatbots. So I think um, the chatbot uh, phenomenon is, 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 is really something fascinating to watch. I think from a customer service standpoint, I ordered some um, sunglasses from a company called Blenders and everything was communicated to me through Facebook Messenger via a bot. I was a a judge at the Santa Clarita Valley uh, startup weekend a little bit ago and the winner was a a chat-based bot for receiving an auto insurance quote, which I thought was so interesting. I mean, an industry that's just ripe for disruption and the fact that they were doing it by way of a bot, um, very different than all of the other entries, which were website and app-based. So that's one trend I've been. It's not necessarily an app, so I, I didn't answer your question directly, but any anything I'm seeing coming out in the bot space has been, has been something I've been keeping my eye on. Last question for you, Ashley. Mm-hmm. If uh, you go down in Product Management Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. and I hope that you do, I mean, <laughs> you're certainly on, on the way, is there a, an inspirational quote or mantra either that you use professionally to kind of guide you or just something that you use personally that you want to share? Sure. It's a, it's a quote that everyone has heard of before, so it's, it's not going to be revolutionary in that regard, but everything happens for a reason. I have it by my bedside in a frame, and I think it's so true. If you don't get the job you want, 
I'm confident it's because the universe has a different plan for you and usually a better plan. Um, you know, I, there's been plenty of jobs I've wanted, didn't get, and it works out for the better always. So I not only do I think it to myself regularly, but I say it all the time. Everything happens for a reason. I think it's super powerful. I agree with you. My, my version of that is trust the process. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes in life we're zoomed into 300 DPI and we mm-hmm. can't really see the big picture. Yep. We just need to kind of come out and go, oh, that's what's being formulated. Mm-hmm. But but you're right. We don't, we don't know what's good or bad, so we try to label it based on the context we have at the time. Yep. Okay, for those people listening in, if somebody does want to come and apply here Mm -hmm. how do they do it yeah absolutely we have a jobs page on our website dollarshaveclub.com there's a careers link in the footer and you can just click on that it'll have the listing of all of our jobs we're hiring for quite a few things now not just product management um, but across the board so you can submit your resume that way and of course a recruiter would be in touch if uh, there was an interest in moving forward Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank Ashley you. Lewis, Dollar Shave Club. Everyone, check it out. Thank you. You're listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great resources for anybody looking to learn more about product management or starting a technology business. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. Join me here. We've got a new conversation every Tuesday. We'll see you next time.